Hi, this is James Shogun, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today we're with Cassie Todd, fantasy author. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hi, this is Kathy Todd. I've published fabulous stories for brothers comics for several decades, and currently I'm retired from business and writing fantasy novels for fun. Cool. Uh, what fantasy novels are those? I started out writing Skyrim fan fiction after playing the game for over a year. Initially, I just wanted to satirize the game universe, which is so close to being just like real life and so far from it at the same time. And then I moved on from the three-volume three X-rated Skyrim parody to a three-volume young adult series based in the same universe featuring the sons and daughters of the characters in the first series. And then after that, I got serious and wrote my own completely original fantasy series about a young half-black orphan girl in an alternate Earth where the gods are real and interact with their worshipers in a way that uh, most people on this earth would like to see. Right. And after that, I wandered into writing some shorter, fast, action-packed novels with, oh, you know, X-rated romance in them. I published X-rated comics for quite a few years, and I'm kind of a fan of X-rated literature. It can always be fun, especially depending on how you do it. Well, I, I've had some people refer to it as purple prose. Or maybe purple-headed prose. Right. So uh, it, it has been a lot of fun. So, all right. Uh, just because it's, I guess it's important for the historical stuff here. Uh, what, how, what got you interested in the uh, ripoff press initially? Uh, I moved, grew up in the East Bay suburb and moved to San Francisco, living in the Haight Astor, starting in 1968. And my uh, old man and I used to walk down to a record store in the area where we could get the latest. LP from the Grateful Dead or whoever, and they had comic books for sale. The first underground comics that I had ever seen, which I was just amazed by. Saw you know, Snatch and Jizz and uh, Feds and Heads with one. So I was already a fan of the underground comics, and then fast forward. Uh, five or six years to 1975, I had gone back to college and I needed a summer job. I was dating a guy who happened to be working for Ripoff Press, who was one of the original Austin, Texas gang, the people that started Ripoff Press back in 69. And he was going back to Texas and said, hey, Kathy, you want my job? And I was like, do I? I was so thrilled to be working for the company that had produced all those great comics. It was uh, it was just awesome. Of course, then I ended up falling in love with my boss and marrying him, and having you know two kids and forty years of comic publishing and stuff. It just kind of took over my life. Just because, what, uh, do you remember why they used the, they basically spelled it with an X rather than the usual CS at the end? C-O-M-I-X? I have heard a story about that. I think they did it mostly to distinguish it from the mainstream comics code authority comics, because even... What as recently as the 80s, the Comics Code Authority that was started back in the 50s was a real thing, and it meant that comic books could not contain nudity, profanity, extreme violence, people getting killed, 
people doing bad things unless they were the bad guys that were to be defeated by the good guys. And the undergrounds just completely broke the mold on that. They had everything that those other comics didn't have and were not intended to be read by children. Right. So the text kind of, you know, says it. All right. So for the people who don't know, what basically was going on with the fabulous furry freak brothers? And well, what kind of comic were they? Just to show you just how different they were than mainstream. Well, they actually, Gilbert's stuff was always a lot cleaner than some of the other undergrounds. Our Crumb's comics were largely driven by his libido and his sex fantasies. So there was a lot of really super X-rated stuff in that. Freak Brothers almost never even had nudity, let alone sexual activity. There's this one story called Fat Freddy Gets the Clap. Excuse me. That he did for his longtime partner and eventually wife, Laura Fountain, who uh, was publishing a comic that was intended to be something of a sexual education comic. But that was the only time that the Freak Brothers ever really got laid. Uh, mostly it was these three picaresque characters, sort of like a hippie version of the Marx Brothers, who lived together in a crappy apartment in San Francisco and spent most of their time trying to figure out ways to avoid working and still have food and plenty of dope to smoke. Since dope was illegal, a lot of their adventures involved uh, evading the cops. But they had a lot of just very classic comedy situations. I, I have to say that, well, Gilbert's comics always made me laugh even after I'd read them 50 times. His humor was not that far out. It was more relatable. You know, almost anybody who had been a dope smoking hippie could completely relate to the Freak Brothers. Yeah, I think. Like, it, sorry. Oh, later on, the adventures got a little more out there. <laughs> he he began to run out of ideas as early as the middle 70s and started taking on collaborators to help him because the stuff was very popular but he just didn't have creative energy to keep just spewing it out on his own so he was working with Dave Sheridan in 75 when I got there they were working on the Freak Brothers uh, seventh voyage where they go to Mexico and at that time, they had started, I guess in 73, they started the Freak Brothers Comic Syndicate, and they had acquired a client list of mostly weekly, you know, entertainment newspapers and college papers, and every week they would send out the camera-ready copy for a collection of underground comic strips which included the Freak Brothers, sometimes it was Wonder Warthog. We had people like Ted Richards, Joel Beck, uh, Harry Driggs. Man, <laughs> I'd have to take a minute to, to remember all of the people that were producing comics for the uh, syndicate back at that time. Yeah. But the deal with that was that the strips would go out every week to the papers, and when we had enough of them to make a comic book, they'd get collected into a comic. And the the Freak Brothers full six and seven all came from the Freak Brothers uh, strips that had been in the syndicate, plus the ripoff comic series collected the work that was done by other people and usually it would have some of the Freak Brothers in it also. Yeah. Interrupting you for just a moment. Going here's where I that is when they collect all the strips into put them into an actual bigger uh, book. That is like mm -hmm. so seriously hardcore old school. 
I mean, you have to keep in mind, when comic books first started up, it wasn't Superman and Batman and all that. It was actually just Sunday Funnies that literally did pretty much the same thing. They took all the Sunday Funnies that, or all the you know newspaper Funnies that showed up over a period of time, uh-huh. and gathered them all up together, and then published them as as an actual book by themselves. Uh-huh. I, so, I don't know that I've seen any books like that. At least, well, I've seen modern day compilation books of classic comics like Little Nemo and I, I think Kitchen Sink used to do a bunch of those but were those something that came out like in the 1920s also? Yeah, that's like that's where the original comic books were were literally books of comics Oh my god, I didn't know that so. Of course, you know, that stuff was all happening before I was born Yeah So, um and Wonder Warthog needs a special note here as well, just because that was another really cool comic. Yes, it was. I, I first read a Wonder Warthog strip in the pages of Drag Cartoons magazine, which I bought when I was 15 years old. <laughs> Back in the mid-60s. Gilbert's eight years older than I am, so he was already a working professional cartoonist before I was out of high school. Dang. When it came down to the... I mean, obviously the Furry Freak Brothers have always been popular. What started happening when you started having to deal with uh, basically the breakdown of the Commons Code Authority in the 1980s? It didn't affect us that much. There were so many different market forces going on at that time. Uh, in 1975, when I first came to work for Ripoff Press, we were distributed through the head shop distribution system. I can't recall now the name. There was a re- couple of really major distributors who were selling to head shops, and comics were just part of what they were selling. Obviously, they were selling bongs and papers and things like that. but. Uh, when Reagan became president in 1981, he immediately started, you know, launching the war on drugs. And one of the things that they wanted to do was claim that if you sold comics about dope smoking hippies in your shop, that meant you were selling drug paraphernalia. Otherwise, you could just say it was for tobacco. No, there there was a period there where if you had papers and bonds in your shop, they were for smoking tobacco, right? These are perfectly legal, officer, but that really hurt the sales of the comics because a lot of stores who were desperately trying to stay in business thought that maybe if they stopped carrying the comics, they could escape the long arm of the law. So we were really hurting there for a period of several years. Then in eighty. Was it 80, 85? We got out of the lease on the big building in San Francisco, South of Market, 17th Street, where so much of that great stuff happened. We located over to a much, much smaller shop on San Jose Avenue in San Francisco. And we hooked up with Mark Foti, who was sort of a member of the younger generation and a member of our generation at the same time. His his dad, Vaughn, who died in 1975, same age as my ex-husband, Fred. So in that way, Fred was like a father to Mark, but Mark and his wife, Molly, had a daughter who's almost the same age as our son, Jamie. So in that respect, they were our contemporaries. In any case, we became kind of close family friends. Mark was at our shop a lot, and he was the one that hooked us up with the direct market distribution system, which is a completely different ballgame. I'll bet, especially for you guys. Oh, it it was wonderful. You know, it wasn't without its flaws, but as a publisher, you just had to get your act together and say, okay, I am publishing this comic in three months' time, Here's what it's going to be about. You're going to love it. Five plenty. They would 
solicit these comics to the comic shops, collect the orders, get back to you with a pre-order before you had to go to press so that you know exactly how many comics you were going to sell initially and how many you needed to print to cover the demand. And of course, if it turned out that the man wasn't going to cover the cost of the press run, you always had the object, uh, option to cancel, but to try to avoid doing that. Right. And we published Mark's Miami Mice series. And that was right about the time that the black and white boom hit, and the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were huge and transitioning from alternative to mainstream. Right. Yeah, that's about the time I started hitting. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd caught a couple of couple of that. I'd seen a lot of fr the Furry Freak Brothers before that, but it wasn't until then I actually started seeing them a lot in comic book shops. Yeah, they, um, we reprinted the Freak Brothers issues every time we ran out of them, and like the first one, Freak Brothers number one, that came out in 1971. For the first time, I had material by other comic artists as well as Gilbert in it. That comic must have been reprinted once or twice a year for 30 years. Dang. Yeah, hundreds of thousands sold. <laughs> and, and all of the Freak Brothers comics, just they, they never quite, the, the demand did eventually taper off, but considering that there had been no new material for decades, it was amazing how they just kept selling and selling. Right. So when did you actually end up getting out of, of the rip-off press, as far as the actual production of the comics itself? Um, the, uh, the reorder quantities were getting... Ah, uh, that's the parakeet. Yep. The, uh, Kind of, the minimum press run was 3,000 copies, and when it got down to the point where it was taking us two or three years to sell off 3,000 3, uh, copies, we realized that we couldn't really keep publishing. We did publish a few new comics in the early part of the 2000s. I think we published a demi-demonist or two. The sex comics were still selling. They weren't selling like they had in the early 90s, but they were still selling. And uh, I always thought Dummy was enjoyable. But uh, eventually we just kind of stopped publishing and we're just running it as a online you know, mail order operation, basically. We had been putting out a catalog once every three months for quite a few years, that was all my project. Finding the new material, putting catalogs together, massaging the mail list. I even physically mailed the catalogs a lot of the time. And uh, I think it was the one I was going to bring out at the beginning of 2001 or maybe 2002 the printer who'd been doing the catalogs for us said, well, we want cash on the barrel head before we will print this. And we said, no, I guess not. That was it. We never, never mailed another catalog. What kind of marketing did you guys do? I mean, was, did you guys pretty much limit it to word of mouth, or did you actually have some fun with it? We advertised, of course. We sent out lots and lots of flyers when the... IADD, the International Association of Direct Distributors, was still in business before Marvel moved the distribution system in, was that, 93, I think? When, when they tried to pull their 40% market share out, it caused all of the distributors to go out of business owing us money. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. That... Yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> uh, basically, you pretty much answered. I was just curious what kind of marketing techniques you guys used. Well, we, we never really had an advertising budget. 
I'd say maybe the only time we did have money was back in 79 when we got 500, no, it was a quarter of a million dollars from uh, uh, Universal Studios for a five-year option on a Freak Brothers movie that never got made. So that was the point where we got computerized. We printed up a year's supply of Freak Brothers comics to sell, and we launched various publishing projects that mostly weren't all that successful. But we did have fun with it. it. That was just at the tail end of the super popularity of the Fruit Brothers, I think. So that the, um, the feeling at that time was, we don't have to advertise this stuff. It's just, you know, it sells itself. Right. And then later on, when we were struggling in the late 80s and early 90s trying to maintain ourselves as a publishing company, we really could have used some money for promotion and marketing and didn't really have it. Uh, I did, I spent money on a card deck one time that generated 1,200 catalog requests. Now, that was a lot of work. And the, the mail-order operation really used to pull its weight pretty well back, you know, as recently as the early 90s when, I, when the X-rated comics were just hitting and becoming really popular. But as that cooled off and the whole comics industry was starting to see a lot of competition from non-print media, things began to look bad all over. I mean, even, you know, Marvel and DC are not selling the number of comics now that they did 20 or 30 years ago. Their their per-issue sales have dropped way off. On the other hand, they're making money hand over fist doing movies. So. Yeah. yeah. The other ones were always a poor man's way of getting creative product in front of an audience because they were black and white, you know, they had nice cover, color cover usually, which helped to sell the product, but the interiors were cheap newsprint, cheap black print, and the manufacturing cost on a comic back in the later 70s was probably something like 15 cents. And then we paid a 10% of cover on net copies sold royalty to the artist or artists there were multiple artists, they had to split that money, but it was still a pretty good royalty. And of course, we were selling them to the distributors at 60% off cover, to stores at 40% off cover, so the manufacturing cost had to be low. These days, uh, it seems like every little comic, whether it's really a fine art comic or not, has to be full color, full bleed on glossy stock. There are a lot of exceptions to that, but go, doing the dreaded going back a step, well, I'm seeing a lot of parallels between what you guys were doing with your your comics versus what's going on with uh, web comics today. Because we're seeing, you know, you're basically trying to figure out how well, the cheapest possible printer you can find, the mm-hmm. easiest way to do it. Cause you're seeing a lot of black and white out there. It's just not being as advertised as much. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I feel as though I'm kind of out of touch with the comics industry as it exists today. I haven't been to a comic shop in years. I have not read any new comics. My my only contact with the industry is my Facebook interactions with other people who are, you know, still doing it. Yeah. I mean, what I'm sort of looking at is that in a lot of ways, your business model, which was to collect the strips, I mean, you publish them out, then collect them into a bigger strip, and then sell them pretty much however you could, pretty much parallels a lot of ways what we're doing with web comics, which is sort of a weird parallel. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're getting a revenue stream from web comics. Believe it or not, yeah, doing the pre- we're doing pretty much the same thing when you start looking at how the a webcomic actually does goes to print, you're seeing the same basic thing where they're collecting all the co- comics that have occurred over a period of time 
putting them all together into a book and then selling off that book. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, print on demand? Yeah, pretty much. But uh, That's how my books get into paperback. <laughs> but you're also looking at the parallel between the way you guys were taking advantage of the direct um, sellers, like through Diamond, that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, the direct distributors and how they're taking advantage of with uh, with Kickstarter. Because a lot of the Kickstarters aren't necessarily uh, original books or anything, or, you know, standalone books, but they're actually parts of a series and they're using the Kickstarter to actually sell individual books in that series. Uh-huh. And they're doing pretty much the same thing you were doing with the direct distributors in terms of using Kickstarter to determine how many copies you have to make. And basically doing it, uh, sorry, backing up, doing it as a pre-sold situation where they basically take in the orders, yeah. and then once they get enough orders, then they basically cap, cash out basically and print the books. Well, that sounds like a good way to do it. <laughs> the only exception is is that they're giving people an option of uh, with tiers, which is. If you pay a little bit more, you get a little bit more. You know, you might get like bookmarks or um, shirts, that sort of thing. But sell you know, copies. so you know, sell copies, sell merchandise at the same time. Yeah, I, I feel kind of not not in the loop anymore these days. It's an old granny. Living in the suburbs. Yeah. But, you know, things change, so that's not bad. I mean, you've, you've moved on, so. Yeah. And I speak- was at Comic-Con in uh, 2016, and I was really hoping to see some old friends. Well, I did run into a few old friends. I got to see Trina Robbins, who I hadn't seen in years and years and years. When we moved up to Auburn, we kind of left all that San Francisco comic scene behind. But compared to the 90s when there were people from the underground all over the Comic-Con floor, it was mostly just thousands and thousands of people packed in like sardines and dressed like superheroes. Right. Kind of moved beyond what it had been. And there's just, man, I guess there's a lot of smaller cons you can go to where... The atmosphere is a little more relaxed. Just out of curiosity, what, when you went to Comic-Con originally, way back when, what was it like in terms of, the pretty much what was the difference between that and how you, you saw it in 2016? I, I got to see it evolve over a period of decades. The first Comic-Con I went to with the Rock Crew was in 1977, and it was on... Oh, I guess it was like in a big ballroom at the uh, El Cortez Hotel in San Diego. We stayed at a motel and walked over there. One, one year we brought the giant life-size Wonder Warthog standee, which Gilbert had painted on uh, plywood. It was it? Hmm, maybe it was Masonite. That was one of the few paintings Gilbert had ever done, as far as I know. But... There were just, you know, a few hundred people there. Everybody knew everybody. You could walk around. You could talk to people. You could look at the comics. There hadn't really started to be a big corporate presence yet. Then go forward, I guess maybe 78 was the last time we were at Comic-Con. And then when we hooked up with Mark in the mid-80s, he told us, oh, you have to get back to Comic-Con. You've got to promote this stuff. Come on, let's go. So we attended the 86 Con, which was in a convention center downtown. Much, much bigger event. We had Mark and his co-creator on the Miami Mice series, Bill, Bill Fitz, uh, signing books at our table. That's what it was, just a, like a six-foot banquet table. And uh, as I recall, we had Paul Mavridis come down with us to sign Freak Brothers comics. And 
at the time that he was scheduled to sign Freak Brothers Comics, Stan Lee was two tables down at the Marvel booth signing comics, and the people that were backed up in line to get autographs from Stan completely hid Paul. It was as if he had ceased to exist, and he was really ticked off, as you could imagine. Mainstream pushing the underground out. Poor guy. Right, so after that, we didn't go in 87 because that was the year that we relocated the company up to Auburn after the big warehouse fire in 86. And after 87, we went to every con, oh, 88, 89, 90, 91, I think 92 was the last time we went. And again, it was a matter of following revenues, making it so that it didn't pay for itself anymore. And it was it was a lot of effort for not being able to recoup what you had spent going there. So we kind of had to pull away from that at that point. But during those years from the late 80s to the early 90s, the corporations and the movie people really started ramping up their presence and it began to change from something that was sort of an organic celebration of the comics industry into the kind of corporate entertainment extravaganza that, you know, it had basically gone Hollywood. And I think it's still very much Hollywood now with the comic book movies being so prevalent. Yeah, I've had a lot of people point out there's been a lot of changes over the years, so I was just curious what some of the more specific things were. Well, I recall the first year that there was a movie studio presence at Comic-Con. I was talking to a lot of people who were objecting to that. It's like, oh, what are those guys doing here? You know, they're not comics. I, I think maybe people were starting to sense that electronic media was stealing market share in the entertainment industry from print media, which is what we were all about, and they didn't like it. It was the handwriting on the wall, and of course, you know, that's kind of how it has turned out. Kids today, you never see them without their electronic devices. And you hardly ever see them with a print book or a comic book. Although I, I volunteer for the local library here in Antelope, and they have a teen area that is full of um, graphic novels. One whole side is devoted to manga, and the other side to other graphic novels, and the manga is just hugely popular. Yeah. They're uh, strange English language editions. You know, Japanese is read right to left instead of left to right. So the what we would think of as the front cover of the book is actually the back cover of the book as far as the Japanese publishers are concerned. But other than that, they're still set up for you know normal English reading. Yeah, they had to do that because the, I mean, it's basically printed in reverse relative to the word thinking because when it was printed in our direct order, there turned out to be a lot of graphic issues. So, uh -huh. but you can, I'm sure that you're, as a print person, you can understand a, that potential for issues there, so. Oh, oh yes. We, uh, back when, when Gilbert and Paul did the color Freak Brothers and the Idiots Abroad series, which we initially published as Freak Brothers 8, 9, and 10, and then published it as a trade paperback. And we did the trade paperback, which was in 1987. I spent a full week in the dark room shooting color sets for that. It was all done with the old Fluoritone process where you, you paint overlays in grayscale and the grayscale paints are fluorescent and then you shoot them with a filter and an angled screen and anyhow technical details from 
the bygone era of old-style print production as opposed to just sending PDF files to your printer and getting print materials back. Yeah. And we did that press run over in Spain, and they swapped out the black plate every X number of copies and printed it in a different language. So we got the English, Spanish, French, German, and some other language editions, basically with the same plates on the uh, yellow, magenta, and cyan, and just swapping out the black plate. <laughs> really saved a bundle. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And these days, it's everything is different. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, I actually had your help. Years was as a uh, a desktop publishing specialist at a company in Auburn that was printing audiobook catalogs. So I got to see what it's like these days. Do you remember the uh, Carmichael Times? No, I uh, I've only lived down in this area in the last year and a half. I, I was up in Auburn for over 30 years. Yeah. We had the Auburn Journal. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because when you start looking at the various differences between the old school versus the new school, you know, where you actually had to do worry about, we, I keep on, I was on the person, I was actually the person who transitioned that particular no, uh, newspaper from the old way of doing things, which was, you know, the black plates, Ruby list, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Into the actual PDFs. So. Well, PDFs uh, certainly do save a lot of effort, although you do have to watch out. But uh, when I think back, I, I was over in Europe hitchhiking around during 73 and 74, came back to the States, and went back to college because I wanted to learn a trade. And it was a choice between aircraft mechanic or printing tech. Decided to go with printing tech, which kind of dovetailed nicely with the job at Ripoff Press. I was the camera operator and stripper there for quite some time, as well as the editorial duties. I pretty much did everything. But um, I watched it go from, I mean, people were still using hot type, you know, linotype. <laughs> Back at that time, and paste-ups and dot etching and all this stuff, it was, it cost about the same as the rent on a San Francisco apartment to get a single letter size color separation set made, you know, four negatives. And then uh, was involved with the production right up through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. We had all of the film for the Freak Brothers, and then at some point in the 2000s, our printer down in Texas, Brenner, said, we can't use your film anymore. We need you to send us digital files. Like, what? <laughs> I spent a whole year doing top quality you know, black and white scans of all the Freak Brothers interiors, and then getting the covers redone digitally was... Yeah. I'll bet. This project entirely. That was a lot of work. Jeez. So, and yeah, I guess it better shift, shift gears tremendously, uh, mainly because it is the dreaded Nano Month. So, uh, National Novel Writing Month this month. Go figure. Oh, yes. NaNoWriMo. I, I thought about participating. I think I would need to be properly uh, inspired. I wrote my first novel in 28 days. Dang. And I wrote the first much shorter novel. It was only like 64,000 words. In the uh, Dark Shield series, I wrote that in 11 days. You know, from concept to first draft. Right. 11 days. Uh, so I, I I wrote 12 novels in three years. Nice. 
And then I kind of bogged down. I think it was the fact that they weren't selling it. Yeah, that's always a fun thing. Um, basically, you mentioned you gone from doing a adult Skyrim parody to a more uh, young adult friendly version. How? What was the process with that like? That was a huge amount of fun. I think you know, I am a mother. I'm in attuned with the joys of you know having a family and raising kids. And well, of course, and you know, having had an X-rated youth like so many people my age, I felt that it was kind of a logical transition from these people being adventurers who screwed a lot to settling down, having kids, and then having new adventures. And then, of course, the kids get to that certain age and get to have their own adventures. There's that coming-of-age genre, so to speak. I mean, it's maybe not a genre, but it's a type of story that you'll see over and over again. I mean, in a way, the first Star Wars you know, story was kind of a coming-of-age story as young Luke Skywalker is just living a boring life and then things start happening to him and he discovers his destiny. So uh, I had a lot of fun with that, writing about this kid who, you know, he's 15 years old, he has all kinds of magical abilities and can turn into a dragon at will. Yet nobody gives him any respect. <laughs> so he and his friends go off and get themselves into a lot of trouble. And of course, the parents are trying to track them down and save them, but they don't really need saving. So that just, I, I thought that really gave me a chance to explore a lot of ideas. And uh, I may not have sold that many of those books, but I certainly enjoyed writing them. And then, of course, you eventually did, went away from doing the Skyrim parodies and did your own, made your own world completely. Yeah. Actually, this, the Skyrim parody books sold fairly well. And then they sold well enough that Bethesda's lawyers came around saying, you have to stop selling these. You're not allowed to monetize your fan fiction. And I was like, oh, oops. <laughs> So I, all of those, all six of those novels got taken off of Amazon. I went ahead, I wrote the, uh, whoops. Huh. Oh, I gestured, and there we go, I hope. Good. Things are going on here. Um, I wrote the Shadow God series and really made an effort to promote it. I sent it to, hmm, why am I looking at your Gmail? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I just got a, I just got a uh, interesting note, so. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I can see everything that's on your screen, I guess. That's interesting. Uh-huh. Anyhow, uh, Sent it, sent it to a bunch of publishers. Uh, I entered it in a uh, writing competition. Did a lot to try to promote it, pretty much without any success. Went ahead and wrote two more novels in that series, and then moved on to the shorter ones that were quick and easy and fun to write, fun to read too. And then meanwhile, I got. You familiar with Chuck Austin? It's one of those names that sounds familiar, but that's... We were one of his first publishers with the strip series. A, sort of a... It was an X-rated series about some kids in a co-ed dorm. Based on his own experiences in life, I think. And then he, you know, had a few personal crises and moved on. For a while there, he was doing The Little Mermaid for Disney. 
And then he, he was writing for DC and he was working in television. He was uh, heavily involved with that animated series, Tripping the Rift. Right. So, you know, he's, he's definitely hit the big time in the comics business and related entertainment industry. But uh, he still regards Ripoff Press as, you know, somebody that he feels glad to have known. So we were chatting on Facebook, and he said, well, you just need to rewrite your fan fiction so that it's no longer fan fiction. He told me that the Twilight novels, uh, oh, it was uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was originally Twilight fanfic. Yeah. Was, was what he told me. So I rewrote those six Skyrim novels so that they were basically just, you know, generic swords, sex and sorcery, or, or just swords and sorcery. Right. Did away with any oblique uh, Skyrim references, changed all the names, rewrote a lot of the uh, story action to do away with game quests. And uh, <laughs> it may have been something to keep me occupied, but it certainly didn't help the sales. Uh, they sold pretty well as fanfic and as standalone fiction, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can. I see why because at that point you got something that was linking back to what people were interested in. Uh, yeah. Well, I've I've been reading fantasy for since maybe my mid twenties. Was mostly reading science fiction earlier, and gradually just found that I enjoyed fantasy more. Yeah. So, uh, when you did into so when you actually did all that, uh, it was just a major mess you had to go through, or what to uh, to basically yeah to get rid of all the Skyrim elements. Uh, I wrote all my novels in Microsoft Word. And it has wonderful find and replace capabilities. So I, I did have to completely eliminate some sequences and rewrite some sequences. But other than that, I was just able to go through and change the name of this character who appeared in the Skyrim game to a completely different name and change the place names and change the political situation it, it wasn't really all that much work i was cool. able to do that in a fraction of the time it took me to write them in the first place cool and you've got a new uh, fantasy series out uh yeah i started writing those hmm, about four or five years ago, and got three of them out, and then kind of bogged down on the first one, a lot of stuff going on in my life, you know, getting divorced from my husband, things like that. So uh, I only finished the fourth novel in the series, The, um, the Red Gin, uh, a couple months ago. What was that like when you had to, I mean, at this point you basically having to create an actual fantasy world by, by yourself. Yes. I take it that was a lot of fun as well? Yes, because you get to make it the way you want it to be. If you want fantastic creatures, you can have fantastic creatures. If, if you are basically doing your own version of familiar fantasy characters, Creatures like elves, dwarves, whatever, dragons, you get to configure them the way that you want them to be. I, I know there are a lot of people who write modern fiction or nonfiction, and they spend months or years just doing research to make sure that their books are accurate. But with fantasy, you pretty much don't have to do that. Right. If I were writing crime fiction, I would at least have to research and make sure that if I mentioned guns, I was talking about a real gun. Right. But, 
fantasy kind of uh, eliminates that need. And, you know, other than the fantastic scenario and maybe certain powers that people have, certain things that can happen that couldn't happen in the real world, these are real people that your characters are as human as anybody in a modern fiction novel or a crime novel. You know, they, they are people reacting to unusual circumstances. Right. Alright, so real quick, uh, on the, any, any final thoughts about writing or comics in general? Well, I uh, would hope that comics will never die. They may change venues, as you were talking about the web comics. But uh, I've, I've, comics have been a huge and enjoyable part of my life for many years. Um, okay. And, and of course, and I'm, go ahead. With, with writing novels, you don't have to worry so much about the media because with e-readers now, you can, <laughs> your books never have to see print, but people can still read them. Right. I myself have a Kindle and I read it all the time. And you can get any of my books on Kindle for $2.99 a piece from Amazon. And what are the names of those, your current your current crop? Hmm. What's the name of the current crop? Well, um, all thirteen of my novels, as they are currently constituted, are available on Amazon. You can go to my website, kathytodd.com, and you'll find pictures, descriptions, and Amazon sales links to all of them. Cool. And, of course, the obligatory plug for my site, which is that if you liked what you've heard here and you want to hear a little bit more, especially some tips, tricks, and some unedited interviews, uh, please check me out at patreon.com slash twosparrows, T-W-L. So, and it's been great having you. Thanks very much for having me, Dennis. Yeah, pleasure is definitely mine. I mean, it was just sort of fun seeing the differences between how things have been done and how they're currently being done, so...